Frank. Yes. We just came back from Sweden. Yes, we did. We had a great time. It was winter. Yep. We went ice skating in the city centre. I threw a snowball in the back of your head. Yep, good aim. Uh, we had the odd glass of gluck. Gluck was everywhere. That's disgusting. It's like, uh, it, it's mulled wine as spiked with a spirit of some kind. And it's hot. And it's hot. And you loved it. Well, it's not to say I loved it, but within moderation, I had the odd glass. Okay. It's odd, because like I say, it's everywhere, but actually alcohol's really heavily regulated in Sweden. Like, if you want to buy it, you have to buy it from a state-run bottle shop called System Systembolaget. Is that his it? Well, let's ask my friend Anita, who we stayed with. Okay. Systembolaget? Okay, so no. Thanks, Anita. Um, and there's only 25 of these shops in the whole of Stockholm. They shut at 7pm. You have to be over 20. Imagine only having 25 bottle shops in Melbourne. Well, considering there's a thirsty camel on every corner. And that's nothing compared to England either, where we went first. Well, when I was in England, it just shocked me in 93. I lived in England and you just go to the local milk bar, what we call milk bars, and you could buy a can of Foster's there or a can of whatever you want. You still can, to be clear. And you yeah. can buy them, you know, in train stations. Train stations will sell alcohol if they've got a shop. On trains, often there's a trolley service. Wow. Yeah. So, so what does that say about the English? Um, I think it says we like to chill out after work or even before work. Well, maybe you're that responsible with alcohol. You can just have trolleys coming up and down trains. That's right. Yeah. Um, but back to Sweden. Yeah. That strictness around alcohol is actually really weird because they also have like a culture of drinking songs called Svenska Snapsvisor. Svenska Snapsvisor. Uh, there's a there's a really good alcohol museum in Stockholm called Sprit. Sorry, Sprit. Do you want me to say it? Sprit. That's great, yep. Um, so you might say for them, drinking's a bit of a grey area. And this episode's actually about grey area drinking. What's that mean to you, that phrase? Um, I've heard it before, but I don't know what it means. I mean, I'm assuming it's in between healthy drinking and alcoholism. Yep. But that's a huge area. It is a big area, isn't it? It's um, it's coined by Jolene Park. She's a health coach based in the States, as you can probably tell by the name. And she first coined the term in her 2018 TED Talk, which was called Great Area Drinking. And she defines it as the space between the extremes of rock bottom and every now and again drinking. And so she has trained tons of people to be Great Area Drinking coaches. Right. I think Great Area, though, to me... When people use the term grey area, usually it's it's usually companies, corporations and politicians doing something really dodgy yep. and, and trying to minimise their own dubious decision making. So it's quite interesting that this term's being used. Well, it's also a term that's not used amongst men. That's why I guess I haven't heard much of it. Guys don't use that term. So, You've either got a problem or you don't have a problem. Right, yeah. And it's usually they're fucked up in some way to decide that that's kind of a problem. And then, you know, people will recommend, you know, going off to AA, but this, I've never heard the term. Yeah, but somebody has to just get worse and worse and worse and worse. It's not a problem. And then, boom, it's a problem for a guy. 
Yeah, that doesn't even just happen in drinking. That happens when they've got mental health issues, I think, as well. I know we're getting off topic, but I think women's mental health issues get picked up a lot quicker. Men have to hit a crisis or, you know, try and run into a tree in a car or something. And then one goes, oh, oh what's wrong, mate? <laughs> Very what's, true. What's wrong, buddy? <laughs> Are you all right, mate? Are you all right, mate? Why'd you do that? Okay, and that's the beauty of grey area drinking coaching then, because it's actually trying to catch that behaviour before it gets to that point. But I think it's also been a game changer in terms of the actual terminology, because calling problematic drinking grey area rather than something like alcoholic makes it much safer for parents, particularly mums, to admit to. So that therefore it's now easier to seek help. And increasingly you're seeing people on social media talk about the fact that they're alcohol free or AF um, and there's kind of this almost like a sober pride and it's something you can talk about with less stigma than before and I'm seeing a real increase of people very openly talking about quitlit as well what's quitlit quitlit is what we used to call the addiction memoir uh, as you know I wrote an addiction memoir yes you did what's, of the, substances. what's the name of Women that? of substances <laughs> And how much is that on Amazon at the moment? Uh, we don't talk about Amazon, but in your local bookshop, you could order it and it'll be about 30 bucks. Excellent. But yeah, back in that time, which was 2017, it was called an addiction memoir, but now it's called Quitlit because it's like Chicklet. You know, it's it's this movement that's aimed at women. Yeah. Increasingly as well, it's not a real dire rock bottom story. It's more like... God, my life was really hectic when I was still drinking and then I've made these changes and things are so much better now. Sometimes it's a memoir, sometimes it's a kind of a manual, if you like. So there's Quit Like a Woman, there's This Naked Mind, there's a new one, Thousand Wasted Sundays, and I'll link to all those in the show notes. Great. So what about the other 50% of the population? <laughs> Do something for yourselves. <laughs> are there any memoirs from some guys? I tell you what, they do tend to be mainly from white middle class women. Interesting. Mm. Maybe they have the biggest drinking problem. I think it's just because you're not prepared to look at your own problems. You won't, you won't admit you have problems. Well, we don't. You use us as shrinks. We don't. You do? <laughs> <laughs> we use you as our psychologists. <laughs> but anyway, back to Sweden one, one more time, right? Yeah. The stigma there around mum's drinking doesn't seem to be decreasing. Because while we were there, Anita was telling us about this reality TV star who, she has an Instagram account and she'd uploaded a photo of like two glasses of champagne along with a picture of her child. Um, and every time she did this, people would report her. Frank, can you just read from this article I found? Yep, here we go. The artist Mariette Hansen likes to share her family life on social media. Now she's being reported to the National Board of Health and Welfare for a video on Instagram. The complainant stated that she had seen a video in a post on Instagram where Mother Mariette drinks alcohol while rocking the pram with her newborn baby. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then Mariette puts up this defiant post showing four letters she's received from their equivalent of the social services from it, people reporting her. That is so fucked up. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. That would be inundated in Australia if that service (laughs) would take those calls. Well, that kind of stigma or threat, I've never had to worry about it, obviously, because I don't have kids. But I did write a whole chapter in Women of Substances called Keeping Mum. And it was about how it was really hard for mums to get treatment because there's a stigma of being seen as a bad mum. 
in extreme cases, there's the potential risk of having your kids taken from you. But it's also harder for women to seek residential treatment because then their partner, if they've got one, will have to step up and look after the kids. So, you, you know, you might have a partner going, you need to cut down on your drinking for ages. And then as soon as you go, right, I'm going to seek help. They're like, oh, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Behaving. You're okay, you're okay. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, so this episode is about grey area drinking and how this coaching that is rising up can be appealing to women who might otherwise feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not severe enough to go to AA or to rehab. And we're going to talk to some coaches and we're going to talk to some women about their drinking habits. Can I tell, t- tell you a little naive story of mine when I was like seven? We had a friend down the street and um, she was a really good friend of my mum's. Should you name her? They were, well, they were this great family. We were a bohemian family and they were kind of like semi-bohemian. I was an alcoholic, but I, of course, didn't know this. I just thought she was this bubbly woman that came to the house, and <laughs> was, she was so much fun. And then I remember hearing my mum on the phone saying the has a drinking problem. I thought, oh, why does she want to drink so much water? Like, why would she want to drink so much water? <laughs> but had a husband that used to have many affairs. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so... They've changed their name, by the way. It's not at all. Yeah, it's not... Right, so <laughs> for the most part, Frank, this is going to be me talking to our guests and, and probably for good reasons, but we'll catch up at the end, eh? Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you, he actually had an affair with someone quite famous. Who? Well, I can't say it because you just. Right, well, well, look, we'll, we'll go to the theme music and then you can tell me then. Okay. Right. You're listening to Spirit Levels. It's the podcast that pressure tests the wellness industry. I'm actor filmmaker Frank McGree, and every Tuesday with my partner, journalist Jenny Valentish, we'll immerse ourselves in wellness practices from the pseudo to the sensible, and we'll thrash out the benefits. I've known Lissy Turner since 2006, when we both worked for Triple J in different guises. Back then, she was Mel Bampton, a living-at-large DJ who did the Mel in the Morning show and came up with Triple J's famed Like a Version, where bands do covers. I was Jenny Valentish, and I was editing Triple J's magazine, JMag, regularly hassling Mel to write us. These days, Mel goes as Lissy Turner and does a ton of really interesting therapeutic things under the umbrella of the Prana Project. In 2012, she opened the Yoga Shack in Byron Bay with her husband, Shane, They also put on nights in Brunswick Heads called Bender, which is basically a sober bender with tons of dancing. She's a podcaster herself. I've been on Lissy Turner Presents twice, and I can say she is the most smart and intuitive interviewer I've ever encountered. She also has another podcast called Living Hormoniously, about hormone health. But we're here to talk about dissolving patterns, which is about finding freedom from harmful habits, and it's a 21-day online course or she offers it in the form of one-to-one coaching. Lissy knows her stuff. I mean, she studied social work at uni. She's worked at a residential rehab, so she brings an awful lot of knowledge to her programme and coaching. I asked her to talk about how her work around dissolving patterns ties in with her own story and also with her very long-standing yoga practice. My drinking career which was an excellent, rather high-profile, infamous career of drinking, being a famous trash bag, started like a lot of people's drinking habit does. Like in those adolescent years, 
And for me, I really feel like being female was a big part of that, like just trying to find my place. I didn't feel like the definitions of female, you know, and back then the language would have been tomboy, which is something that I've grown to really loathe. But there was a lot of that, I guess, that sense of not really fitting in. But then what it hooked into and where it sustained was that vulnerability of not really feeling you know, powerful in myself or feeling insecure or not really having a sense of belonging. That feeling that you have, you know, when you first start drinking, that feels like power, that feels like comfort in your own body where you're out there being, you know, loud and vivacious and so comfortable in your own skin, of course, until the next morning, where you're just like, oh my God. But the payoff seems still well worth it, right? Where to feel so good in your body at the time of drinking is worth all the shit and all the shame that, that follows for a time. So then for me, that that continued for, I've been clean and sober now for 12 years, 12 or 13 years. And the reason for my sobriety was, I feel almost very privileged in this component of it, is that simply my body wouldn't accept any more alcohol. I got to a point where, I had my last huge bender, which was another tequila night and started spewing at some point in the night as I always did. This time it was when I was in the passenger seat of our car. My husband was driving and three of our kids were in the back seat and I was vomiting out the window, just telling my kids I must have eaten some bad pizza. And then the hangover didn't abate for two weeks. So I knew physically and physiologically that some changes had to be made. But also on a larger and a deeper level, my eldest daughter was going through some really, really big things. She had grown up within my music industry life. We had grown up in that life together. I had her when I was 21. She grew up in my drinking and my amphetamine using partying atmosphere. Even though I tried to keep those things out of the home and away from her, she certainly felt and found herself in the consequences of those behaviors. And when she started to get into trouble herself and in danger with the world, and I realized that in order to be what I needed to be for her, everything had to change. Like as I was with alcohol, there is no way that I could be the size that I needed to be in my internal landscape to meet her needs. I was already a yoga teacher and I had become that as part of these big changes that I was making in my sobriety. One of the really important things when you are looking at dissolving something, particularly if it's something really big like alcohol, which can be so pervasive in our lives, even for gray area drinkers, we need something to fill that space. A hanging void is very dangerous. So what was big enough to go into that space for me is the vast and infinite project of yoga. And what I'm talking about in that is not, oh, I'm going to do some physical movements and turn my body into these weird shapes. Like that's one tiny part of it that unfortunately has become the, the magnified component of yoga. Being flexible in terms of cerebrally flexible in our relationship with our body is definitely important because our patterns get hardwired into our bodies as well. So yoga was the thing that I poured into the space of my newfound sobriety, became a yoga teacher. And then I started teaching in a live-in rehab and I was watching and working with people who were in there for seven and a half months 
away from their families, away from their friends and their communities and connections. And a lot of the time that was positive being out of the situations where all of their patterns were ingrained, but it was also heartbreaking. And what I started to notice, whether it was in there, whether it was in the community focused rehabilitation programs was that it was so much about abstinence and for good reason, that thing had, you know, been a problem. But as we all know in the world of substance use is that it's never the seed of the problem, but this very big focuses were on the abstinence from that thing. And in order to be abstinent around something, it often takes great force and great rigidity. And so what I was watching, and it worked for some people, this is absolutely by no means a criticism of of any other program, but from the approach that I was coming from as a yoga teacher and through my own experience and then a yoga therapist, which I became over four years later as a postgrad, was there are gentler ways to do things that make it longer lasting, that change you at all layers of your constitution. So what I wanted to offer was instead of this really rigid focus on abstinence, don't do that, don't do that, because all you're still doing is focusing on the same thing, but with the opposite attitude. Whereas before it was like, do the thing, do the thing, do the thing. So Dissolving Patterns was born with a different approach. And the two most significant differences are it's whole constitutional. And what I mean by that is that it's in the body. So we're moving the body in different ways every single day. So any of those patterns that even exist in the body that create discomfort and imbalance in the body, they're addressed because nothing that happens in the mind escapes the body. Nothing that happens in the mind can escape the body. So what are the conditions of my organs? Can I process the stuff that I'm putting into my body? Can I process the thoughts that I'm experiencing? Can I process my own emotions through my physiological system? And then, of course, the tools that we would use specifically for the mind, meditation, visualization, sound, all of those components. The other difference is rather than focusing on what it is that you don't want to be doing, have an awareness to that. Like, put it in your journal, put it on your mind maps, name it, dissect it, pull those things apart. Great. Where do you want this energy to be going? If it's not going into drinking and hangovers and processing shame, well, what do you actually want to be doing? What makes your heart sing? Because the more that you feed that, the less time and the less neurons you have for the other. It just falls away. For the most part, patterns or our conditioning habits, whatever you want to call them, they've developed over time and they develop in you know this really amazing way. We're telling our brains, hey, brain, this is what I do. We do that thing once, twice, three times. And the brain's like, oh, okay, this is a thing that my person does. I'm going to make it super easy for them. So essentially it clusters neurons together. It binds them together with these synapses and then you don't really have to think about that pattern anymore from that conscious perspective. Like brushing your teeth is a great example, driving your car, uh, talking, walking, anything that you can think of in your life is coming from that automated pattern place. The danger with that though is that the brain doesn't discriminate. There isn't that part of the brain in the gray matter that's going, this isn't particularly good for us. So it's indiscriminate to good or to bad. So then when we've got these patterns that are not good for us, that make us suffer, and they're starting to bother us, 
we know they're a problem. We know they're negative. They're not helping our life. They're leaching our energy away. And we want to start addressing those. What we're really looking at doing is how we are starting to draw some of those neurons away from that well-formed cluster. So it starts to look different and bit by bit, positive action after positive action, we dissolve that cluster of neurons. We do actually have the power to be creating our own positive patterns. Our mind is only our own. Our body is only our own. Yes, when we're younger and we're trying to figure out the way that the world works, there's all of these people from all around that are teaching us how this world works and it wires us in a certain way. But ideally, we come to a place in our life where we go, hang on a minute, what are all these patterns and this conditioning? They're not even mine. I don't even believe in that. Or I've accumulated new things along the way as response mechanisms to traumas or not even anything as big as a trauma, but simply a feeling of not belonging or having low self-esteem. And we find these gap fillers, these easy props, because we don't have the tools to know how to fill ourselves up and affirm ourselves without these external substances. Abstinence is not the important thing. Abstinence is rigidity. If, you, if that's what you want to do because you're ready, if you want to do the 21 days and go, I'm going to use these 21 days to not do this, to not drink or to not do whatever, that's up to the individual. Everything that I'm doing with the 21-day program is building up the muscles that are conditioning you for what it is that you want to be doing. Because as you condition yourself for that, that's what you start to crave. That's you writing your own positive patterns. Jenny here. I quit drinking for eight years before introducing booze again very cautiously but in that eight years I wasn't actually sober because I allowed myself to take drugs very occasionally. The idea was that giving myself permission would act as a pressure valve because telling yourself you can never do anything again for as long as you live seemed like a recipe for an epic blowout at some point. So I allowed myself the odd nang, line, or psychedelic, but it actually very rarely happened because just giving myself permission was enough. In my mind, this was harm minimization. So I really relate to Rochelle Siminovich, who's about to do a little box pop for us, about how she manages her own drinking. She's thinking she should entirely cut it out, but she's not into the idea of being a sober person for a whole bunch of really interesting reasons. By the way, Rochelle is an arts journalist and an author. She wrote the memoir Fallen, which was about hedonistic exploration, and she has a novel that's a polyamorous love story called Double Happiness that's coming out this year. I think being fully conscious is a real burden, and as human beings, we want to escape some of that uh, burden of consciousness, and we need to be able to do that in various ways. I'm a hedonist. I'm a rebel. I want to live life. I want to enjoy. I'm looking for the zipless high. <laughs> I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist, which is, you know, a religion that has a real health principle, no drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no dancing, no fun. And so as a recovering Seventh-day Adventist, being able to indulge and live in the moment is part of 
being alive to me. But I'm also aware that they were right all along about how bad alcohol was for you and cigarettes and everything else. <laughs> the World Health Organization has come out at the beginning of the year saying there is no safe level of drinking, even though we all want to believe that a bit of red wine is good for us. There actually isn't. And it's it's a, a class one carcinogen. And like, so what are we doing? If we're having it, we need to understand that's what we're doing and we're choosing to do it. I can feel that my brain is struggling at the moment. I'm in the middle of perimenopause and I'm aware that it's just really bad for me to drink that loss of estrogen. And I'm finding it hard to think. I'm finding it hard to remember things. And the number one thing that is just so important to me as I age is to have my brain healthy. And I think we know that alcohol is just not good for our brains. But I don't want to take that final step because I identify as a moderator, not a um, abstainer. Some people just benefit from um, giving up completely and some people benefit from not denying themselves totally. I've been experimenting over the last few years with particularly mushrooms and uh, like a low dose of mushrooms can give you a bit of a buzz. It can, um, it makes me just feel a bit more relaxed and a bit like I've got something on board that's helping me to be in an altered state of consciousness to party and socialize and be a little bit less self-conscious, I suppose. So yeah, mushrooms, a little bit of acid I've experimented with in social settings with various degrees of um, disaster and success. Had some nangs the other night, which were just so much fun. And I, I just thought, why aren't we all just sitting around with balloons and bottles of gas and just having a fun time instead of needing to have alcohol? And to be honest, I think these things can leave you feeling better the next day than having a couple of gin and tonics. But I, I'm also aware that, you know, any substance, if it's overused, can be problematic. So it's a bit of a journey for me. Shauna Smith is a friend of mine. I met her through her writing. She has the blog SoberJourneys.com and she's on a mission to find the best alcohol-free drinks. She would have considered herself to be a grey area drinker and she's really pleased actually that this particular hue of drinker is now formally identified and talked about. I love the term sober rebel, you know, because I'm not very rebellious in my real life, but I love calling myself a sober rebel. And I think that the rise of people talking about how proud they are not to drink and how happy they are is very positive for everybody. I have loved reading Quitlet. It has made a huge difference to me. I had read some about 10 years ago, but there weren't so many back then. But this time when I stopped drinking four years ago, there were many, many books written by people who sounded just like me, you know, middle-aged women who had been drinking because they were bored, resentful, um, and using alcohol in all sorts of ways but then wrote about what happened when they stopped. And I honestly could relate to them so hard. And loads of them are very funny. Like a lot of people, I tried to moderate, but it's much harder to moderate than it is to just stop. Just stopping makes your life so simple. Two very different views there on grey area drinking. Now I've got a second coach for you to meet, Faye Lawrence. 
She's a grey area drinking coach trained by Jolene Park. But Faye's also now incorporated ADHD coaching because the two issues, drinking and ADHD, can often overlap, as they do for Faye herself. I love Faye. She's got such a no-bullshit approach. She's English, but she's based on the Gold Coast. She stopped drinking in 2018, and she founded Intoxicated, which became Australia's largest alcohol-free community with loads of meetups before it ceased operations this year. But she just doesn't stop. She's got a degree in psychology. She's qualified in counselling. She works at the Amiga Wellness Centre in Ipswich. She's on the board of Smart Recovery. She actually took my place on the board when I stepped down after five years. So all this to say, she's not just decided she's going to call herself a sober coach on a whim. She's got the chops. Given her background in counselling and psychology, Faye told me that she always thought coaching was kind of a dirty word. But she was also impressed that Jolene Park is conscientious about only training people with a proven track record. Essentially, Faye thinks it's important you do your homework when you're researching a coach. So make sure they're not just randomly calling themselves a coach and they don't actually have any qualifications at all other than they're sober. Unless that's what you want, in which case, knock yourself out. Grey area drinking, coaching, it looks like the whole raft of okay what purpose is the alcohol serving often a lot of it is because you've got a dysregulated nervous system so you're coming home from work things are feeling really out of kilter you're using the alcohol to self-soothe often there's going to be adverse childhood experiences most coaches are not qualified to delve into that but it's just about being mindful that that is in the mix And then working with the individual to go, right, okay, it's not just about what we're taking out, the alcohol. It's about what we're putting back in to build a life that is actually one that you don't need to escape from. But also, how do we stabilize you during that period while you're getting used to removing it? So how do we do that with various tools and practices, whether that's nutrition, whether that's sleep, because often there's multiple things going on. In the grey area space, there's a lot of people who just want that lighter touch, who don't need that more intensive intervention. Coaching is a bit of a softer landing for people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I quit drinking. uh, It was 2009 I stopped. And I think had sober coaching been available, Hmm. I'd much rather have done that than go to AA, which I did for a bit, because I'm just not a groups person. 100%. So I did a bit of AA myself, and I don't like authority, so it's dogmatic. (laughs) The other thing is it's not trauma-informed, and it's not strengths-based. When people are at that point where they're stopping drinking, they already feel like a piece of shit, you know? And I don't want something that's going to make me feel worse. I don't want something that's going to make me trust myself less. So I need something that's going to actually help me build trust back with myself, not tell me, that's why you got yourself in this mess. You need to listen to me, the old timers. When I quit, though, I did still have a job. And quite frankly, I'm a white middle class woman. And I would guess that sober coaching is pretty inaccessible to people who aren't that. Is that the case? Yeah. Honestly, yes. A lot of my clients will be reasonably senior in their profession. Not all of them. People in mental health, people in the legal profession, those sorts of things. They're not certainly all extremely wealthy or anything like that, but they are people who basically can afford cyber coaching 
And I guess you could say the same about things like what's the difference between, say, park run and getting a personal trainer. There needs to be the whole spectrum of offerings so that people of all different stages can tap in. And you are branching out into ADHD coaching as well. So last year, the first clinical guidelines for ADHD were released, and that was a collaboration between psychiatry, psychology, allied health, the whole shebang. And in that, they recommended ADHD coaches. And I suspect part of that is because we just don't have the mental health professionals available in this country, but also because coaches are directive. You give people medication, okay, you might see a psych once a month or once every couple of months for, you know, tweaking your meds, but psychiatrists don't give you mental health support usually. You know, you're not having talk therapy or developing strategies around like, well, how do I organise my day? Or, you know, is this normal, this emotional regulation issue that I'm having? They're there for the meds. That's it. Yes, we need to be careful about coaching because it's unregulated. But then you look at all the mental health professionals and lots of them. They're not up to speed. They're not up to speed. And that's regulated. There's such a big link between alcohol issues and ADHD. And actually, it was reading your book that did it for me because, which I haven't finished, by the way, because I've got ADHD. Oh my God, how long have you had? <laughs> But I actually went for a diagnosis in 2014 and he basically told me to go away and read The Untethered Soul. It's a book on like meditation and because I've got, you know, I've got a lot of trauma in my background and it can present similarly. So he took my money, gave me about 20 minutes of his time and then told me to go and read a book on basically mindfulness, essentially. And then I spent another, what, six years or something and went into a state with the alcohol, which could potentially have been avoided. Um, and reading your book, I was like, bloody hell, that's way too close to home. And that's when I, that was actually, so thank you. Okay. <laughs> so how do you manage your ADHD? What are some strategies that you use on a daily basis? I've got lots of them, but look, it's still a work in progress. I'm medicated. I do a lot of work around self-compassion on a daily basis and my internal narrative. But I literally have organized a lot of stuff in my place so that visually I can see things because if visually I can't see things, they don't happen. So for example, I've got the vitamins I need to take some of those for the ADHD like fish oil and lion's mane and all the rest of it right there so that when I get up in the morning I can see they're there um habit stacking just got to do the small things and build on it I write everything for the month ahead on a whiteboard I manage my ADHD in many of the ways that you just mentioned I whiteboard the shit out of it but I also go to the gym and completely wear myself out having done that to an excessive degree though because I recently competed in bodybuilding at the moment I've got hormonal imbalance which has led to huge histamine intolerance and unfortunately for me that means I have to cut out alcohol again I say unfortunately because I did the eight years sobriety then introduced it cautiously and for me it was working really well apart from the facts that alcohol raises histamine levels (laughs) so I thought it would be great to get some pointers from you to finish off When I first quit alcohol, the stakes were really high, right? There was this constant feeling I was going to die. 
I tried hypnosis, I tried drugs, I tried counseling. And so I felt like my options were all gone. That's not the case now. So in a way, it's harder. Yes. And that's what grey area drinkers find because they're not at that point where like, I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose whatever. It's harder for them to stay on track because the motivation is not as significant. It's not life-threatening. So to get me started, because for me, it might only be just a few months off to sort of reset the body. Yeah. Uh, Anything that you might just give me to set me on my way. Sure. All right. So I would get all booze out of the house. I would change your routine. So is there a particular time of day or certain things you do when you are, so for some people that's cooking dinner or something, what's that for you? Is it the five o'clock? Is it the... Yeah, that's a good idea because it is the kind of knockoff one, the segue between working and having dinner. So yeah, maybe going for a walk at that point. Absolutely. Do that. Change up your routine. Your brain likes familiarity. It likes you to do the same thing. It doesn't like change. So know that it is going to try and derail you. Well, hold on. What's going on here? I want you to keep doing what you were doing before. So just know when those thoughts creep in, that's what's happening. Also, think about what need does the alcohol plug for you? Yeah, and at this point, it's literally a treat. So in the same way that I have a coffee every day and I have a sweet thing every day. Okay, so is there something else that you can have as a treat at that time of day? Because that's the other thing I say, don't try and do too many things at once. Just do the one change. Don't try and give up coffee, sugar, all the rest of it. Just do one thing at a time. Otherwise, you're putting too much strain on your ability to sustain the change. The other thing would be getting used to being uncomfortable. And you are bloody good at that. So get used to not fighting that, but just sitting with it. I know it sounds cheesy. Just don't try and push against and resist. Just be with it. And then just finally get curious about what you're noticing. What's your brain telling you? What thoughts are going through your head? Is there anything that you're noticing? Like how different are your evenings? Have things shifted for you? And kind of do it like an experiment. But you're the subject. Love it. Human guinea pig. I love that stuff. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. Thank you, Faye. Pleasure. Frank, yes, sir. something you don't know about me. Really? Yes. I actually, back in 2017, was going to be a sober coach. Really? I was, yeah, I was designing my own course. And it was it was more about what drives addiction. Why? Why did you want to do it? Because I'd written Women of Substances and I had learned so much. You know, I'd interviewed 30 neuroscientists and researchers Mm -hmm. and clinicians and crunched all these scientific papers and I thought this has life beyond a book so I thought I could make it into a course but I did jettison the idea in the end because I was actually getting quite a lot of correspondence from people when Women of Substances came out that that sometimes was really intense right? and coming at all hours of the day. And did you feel a responsibility to communicate and... Yeah I kind of did. I mean these were people in crisis and they had connected with something I'd done and they believed I could help them. Which, in the one hand, it's really intoxicating. like It makes you feel quite powerful in a benevolent way. Sure. But also, it's very alarming 
and I realized, you know, I'm someone with really tight boundaries, actually. And the other thing is, when you start a course, you always have a closed Facebook group for people who are taking part. And I had a closed Facebook group just for people who'd probably read Women of Substances, you know, wanted to talk about addictive behavior, hadn't launched the course yet. But again, with this Facebook group, I realized, shit, I am not cut out for this. It, why? Because it was people who sometimes were in crisis, people who were asking really difficult questions. And so sometimes people would post things and they'd be quite, you know, drunk or distressed or both. Yeah. I had no fucking clue what to say. It's not my strong point. Yeah. And I, I saw other people step up and, you know, talk these women off the shelf and off the ledge rather. And I thought, God, yeah, I, I can see if I break down what you've just written, I can see why that's the right thing to say. But I don't personally have those kind of interpersonal skills. Well, sober coaches, I mean, they must really have to set some boundaries. Yeah, well, first of all, you'd have to have those kind of skills in the first place and not just have the knowledge. So that's step one. Mm. But yeah, also then you, you would have to have these incredible boundaries. And I do, like I, I like to keep my boundaries close. And so someone needing me would be quite difficult. <laughs> like in a relationship. <laughs> do you feel, do you feel that's a problem? Attention. Do you feel that's a problem? <laughs> but, um, you know, with sober coaching, there are things in place like there's an initial discovery call where you figure out if you're a good fit for this person if they are in crisis then more likely they need to go and see you know a a psychologist but all the same what do you do when it's you know late at night and someone's calling you I I often got messages after my book came out of people three in the morning or you know with suicidal ideation and it's uh, it still happens now and how do you handle it um <laughs> I, I basically tell the truth and I say I'm really not very good at this and I'm not a professional and I can't I can't do that. But that's good, that's really honest. Yeah. And that's Yeah. Well good on you. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm actually gonna end on a shout out for another podcast that ties into all this. If this episode's a bit of interest to you, you're gonna love the weekly podcast Over the Influence. And it's hosted by BBC radio presenter Sharon Hartley, who initially had decided to take a 90-day break from her bottle of wine a night routine, and she just fell in love with being alcohol-free. And her co-host is Ben Anderson, who started off as the producer, but working on the show, he was inspired to quit alcohol himself, which he did four years ago, so now he serves behind the mic as well. And they've had over a million downloads. That's pretty cool. Yeah, of their episodes, which includes interviews with researchers, authors, sober coaches, people behind various alcohol-free ventures, whether it be alcohol-free bars or meetups. There's their own Over the Influence community members, people just doing all sorts of interesting things, and uh, me. They've had me on before. But most pertinently to this episode, they've also been advocating for something called Sober Code. And that's a brainchild of Susan Laurie, who's an author and expert on alcohol harm. And Sober Code is a code of ethics for sober coaches and alcohol-free communities to abide by. So it's voluntary, but this is to help you have a duty of care, it's to help you protect yourself, and it's to make sure sort of everyone's on the same page when it comes to this quite new landscape of sober coaching. So I've put links to Sober Code and to Over the Influence in the show notes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I haven't told you who Dev Butler's husband had the affair with. 
You have a guess. This is a very famous woman in the 70s. One of the probably the most 10 famous women in Australia. Mm -hmm. You have a guess. Um, Olivia Newton-John. No. I think that would have been out of his league. Jackie Weaver. No. So what, Jackie Weaver's not out of his league? Uh, she wasn't out of his league, but no, wasn't her. Wow. Jermaine Greer? Oh, definitely. I don't think Jermaine Greer would have had anything to do with this guy. Judy Davis? No, but I have worked with her. Really? Yeah. Oh. I did a film with her. Mm. Uh, Lillian Frank? Uh, no, not Lillian Frank, but I had a, an experience <laughs> with her at the Windsor Hotel. She's not a very nice woman, that woman. God rest her soul. God rest her soul. She died at 92. You say you had an experience with her at the Windsor Hotel. Well, okay. No, this is a good story. Uh, not the whole story, but just that you were a uh, oh, look, I was a porter. I was a porter at a the porter. hotel. She was, had an event there. She was out the front. I told her she couldn't park her Rolls Royce out the front. She told me she was going to get me sacked. <laughs> and then, and she berated me. And then when her guests came, she'd go, hello, darling. Hey, I tell you where you lose your job, I'll have you. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. I'll beep it. Beep there. Uh, Sheila Florence. No, not 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 Sheila Florence. <laughs> I'm all out. Okay, this is it. You ready? Yeah. Very famous. Yeah. And her name was. <laughs> I don't know who that is. You've been listening to Spirit Levels, a weekly show with Jenny Valentish and Frank McGree. Subscribe to hear our show every Tuesday, and we'd love to see you on Instagram. We're Spirit Levels Podcast. And TikTok, where we're Spirit Levels. See you next week.